I am really glad to be here. It is um, a little intimidating to be here with uh, all of your peers that you were in school with a long time ago. But I am going to say that this was just so much fun. We were out to eat last evening and got to see everybody. And I also want to thank the class of 1971 for letting 1970 <laughs> kind of horn in on your big day and uh, your celebration and that we could do this together. Thank you, Denise, for you and Marty, and, and I know everyone that's had a part in this. Um, and I'm proud. I'm proud of our classes and uh, the years that we were able to spend at Battle Creek Academy. When I went there, I went in uh, <laughs> oof, 1967. Boy, those years, I just don't like to even say them. 1967, as a sophomore, I was uh, newly baptized just about a year and a half before that in the Kalamazoo Church. And I had gone to the Kalamazoo Junior Academy my first time in a church school. And then I decided that three or four or five people in a class wasn't what I was used to in public school. So I thought I would come to Battle Creek Academy. And you know, the Lord just worked it out. I rode here with a teacher. Um, Kathy Bird, not her, uh, her mother, would drive here at, from Kalamazoo. So my folks would take me early in the morning at 6 o'clock. I think I had to be there at 6 or 6.30. 6, 6 o'clock, I guess. I had to be in Kalamazoo. And then I rode here and then rode back. My folks picked me up, my mom or my dad, and took me home. By the way, from my house to Battle Creek Academy was 45 miles. And so it was kind of a sacrifice. I had to be an early riser, and I was early to bed. Um, and my husband is always amazed because he says, you mean when you went to a banquet that a guy would drive all the way to Matawan, pick you up, take you clear back to Battle Creek, have the banquet, go clear back to Matawan, drop you off, and still go back home to Battle Creek. And I said, I guess so. Did you know that's 180 miles in one night? And I think I had dates for all of them. I don't know. Uh, anyways, um, so yeah, those were fun times. Um, and I, you know, I think of some of the memories we were sharing last night and so many that uh, it, it just goes by. Where did Tom go? There, Tom was sitting up here. He's a young fella that is uh, Brenda's um, son. And he was sitting with all us oldie goldies. And he says, what's it, what's it like to be your 50th reunion? <laughs> and I said, well, I can't believe it. That's what I can't, you know. It's just like, Phew, not the young people. Phew, you know, that's kind of what it is. It's just mind-blowing because where did the time go? I mean, you just, you can't believe it because when you're way back then, it just seemed like this would never happen to us. But I will tell you young people that what you have to do is figure out what age you really, really like to be at and stay there in your head because the rest of everything just doesn't stay anywhere. <laughs> and uh, we all know that. We, uh, you know, we did not back then have any joint pain. Uh, no sagging skin, wrinkles, added weight, hair loss, thinning hair. I wrote all these down. Or gray hair. No glasses for reading or eye surgery. Well, maybe some glasses, but uh, no yellowing teeth, no kids, grandkids, or even great-grandchildren. Um, there have been some changes since we were in school, right? 
No cell phones, computers, tablets. Um, what else could we go through? Let's see, our cars were bigger. They were real gas guzzlers. Man, they could go. They were six and eight. Were there eight cylinders? Am I right? Uh, my husband's down here. <laughs> He's going to keep me in check here. Um, we didn't have Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, but somehow we communicated, didn't we? Didn't we get to, I don't know how we did that, but we did. Um, there were, uh, McDonald's was, became fast food. I don't know what slow food was, but we, I don't know what we had before that, but you know, we had McDonald's. TV screens, they were small, uh, very small. In fact, um, they were black and white, no remotes. Doggone it, you had to get up and change the channel. <laughs> what? That, that was too much exercise, you know? So uh, we loved those remotes when they came along. Um, phones were on the wall, by the way, too, uh, or on a desk. You didn't uh, carry it around any place. You had to go wherever it was ringing and, and pick it up, and, and you couldn't go very far either because it was attached. So you had to stay right there. You couldn't multitask. I'm sure nobody does that with their cell phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yes. Mm -hmm. Putting laundry in. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, time was so much different. Free love and hippies, long hair, beads, bell-bottoms, go-go boots, and dare I bring up polyester leisure suits. Whoa, were they not something else? Wow. And the young people are like, what is all that stuff? <laughs> uh, we had culotte sandals, flower pattern, dress shirts. Uh, guys, you had some nice sideburns, didn't you? Uh, those were in then um, afros Barbie dolls were in every catalog G.I. Joe action figures we were a little old for those but we'd had them before uh, Beatlemania I remember when the Beatles first were on a little TV I was over at a friend's house and they were you know there were actually um, probably mostly girls I don't know if there were guys that at concerts and they would just faint away as soon as they saw them on stage it was such a huge thing and then, of course, we had lava lamps. Do you remember those? Smiley faces actually were born tie-dye t-shirts, which are back and turtlenecks. Uh, what a time we had, huh? And what a world. Our world has changed so much, hasn't it? Wow, 50 and 51 years. The 1960s were one of the most turbulent and divisive decades in world history marked by civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, which we know about, the anti-war protests, political assassinations, and the emerging generation gap. Did you know that a new house cost $15,000 and a car was $3,000? In fact, I got to go to college. My folks graciously got a loan for my new car on a red Pontiac Ventura it was on a stick on the on the wheel on the driving here and uh, we had that car when we got married still and I paid them a little I don't know what I paid them money that I made in college and uh, a payment so that I could have my own car twenty three hundred dollars that car was wow just imagine how things have changed and here we are today now, we have changed some, haven't we? We do have a little bit of sagging skin, maybe a few wrinkles that we've tried as women. We get to put the makeup on and, you know, whatever we can do to do a little bit with the gray that might be hidden underneath here. So what I'm going to ask all of you to do 
since I have been on Zoom so, so much. Um, I don't know if you're on it, and if you start a Zoom, host a, a Zoom um, study or whatever, a meeting. There's this little thing you can go on for the visual. Does anybody know about that? If you don't, because otherwise, it's like HGTV. You see every wrinkle, every little pop mark, every little anything on your face. And you do not look good. I am just telling you. You do not look good on Zoom. It's terrible. So when I go on appearance, it says um, enhance your appearance. <laughs> Is that not funny? So what do I do? I take that little bar and I go, you, you really can't go all the way to the... It, it makes you too fuzzy. So you, they got to at least see your face. So you have to kind of do it about two-thirds of the way. But you look so much better and so much younger. So today, all of you, take that little scroll, your, your little cursor and just, ah, oh, there we are. We look so much better, don't we? All right. I wish that what I know now, I had known then. You ever said that? And yet it doesn't work that way. You're young. You still got all, you know, a lot of life ahead of you. You know, my dad um, passed away when he was 93. But at the age of 90, he had a great friend, Fred McLeod. And his son, Pete McLeod, called me oh, about a month and a half ago. And Pete says, Gail, I'm just laughing and laughing because we found a card from your dad to my dad, who was also 90. And my dad had said to him, Fred, wow, we're 90. We got so much to look forward to. You know, that was my dad. I mean, he was just always looking forward. <laughs> Had a lot to look forward to. I wish that I knew then what I know now. Because I don't believe that I understood that we were in a war. Uh, Kelly last night mentioned that and sang a song about that. We have been in a war <laughs> for eons, a long, long time. Author Stu Weber in Spirit Warriors talks about when he landed in Vietnam, a very familiar war to us baby boomers. He writes, when that door swung open, heat and humidity rolled over us like a tsunami. Every pore in our bodies seeped sweat, and the smell was something else, a strange brew of jet fuel, sewage, rotting vegetation, and smoke. It exploded in our nostrils. This was Vietnam. It looked like the depiction of a war zone that you might have seen in the movies. But this was no movie. There were no marching bands, no cigar-chomping John Wayne to welcome us, no swaggering George Patton to fill us with courage, no shouts of, Rangers, lead the way! Just a single, somewhat tired GI pointing to a line of waiting buses, engines running. His message was simple. Thousands of GIs had heard one or another of its variations. Welcome to the war. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we have come here to celebrate. Celebrate that you have brought us all here. Some are watching um, via the, the internet and we are grateful that we have this opportunity, Lord. But we are also sobered by what is in the world and around the world today. And we know that your coming is soon. 
And we know that the battle is ramping up. And though we know you won the battle at the cross, we know that the enemy hasn't figured that out yet. But we are so grateful, Lord, that as we dig into your word today, as we look at what love like this looks like, that you will, you will honor your promise to us as we claim Jeremiah 33.3. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. And Lord, there's a lot we do not know. And we ask today that the Holy Spirit will just fill this place, this auditorium, and fill our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. We all... I take this with me wherever I go now with my little picture frame. Now, you may not be able to see up in the balcony, but basically, it's an empty frame. There's nothing in this because it represents for you and for me, for each one of us, our picture of God. You see, your picture is different than mine, and yours is different than hers, or his is different than his over here. We all have a picture of God. Unfortunately, that picture has been dismantled, leveled, knocked down, demolished, marred, eradicated, and almost annihilated by an enemy that is described in the Bible as a roaring lion, a liar who is here to seek to destroy and kill. What has been painted in this picture has been painted and filled by your parents, your pastors, by your friends, by your teachers, by family members, and by the culture, and by movies, and, and social media, and all of your life experiences have been painted in here with your picture of who God is. And yet the enemy, it's almost as if he, sometimes I take a little marker and just Go across it with a marker because that's what the enemy has done. And so we have to find a way. How do we find out who God is? Um, I used to teach, well, before last year, COVID, I'm hoping next year I can. I taught sixth grade Bible once a week. Um, I've just enjoyed it so much. Four or five years, I think I've done that. And I wrote on the board every week, and they got, you know how kids can go, I know, what is this, you know, because I had them fill in the blank. God is love. God wants to save me. God wants me to know who he is. Truth matters and decisions matter. That was the foundation for me trying my best to help them to find a way to put pieces of the puzzle in their picture of God. And the first thing on that list is God is love. And if you don't know that, if you don't believe that, then the rest won't matter. <laughs> I've been recently asking Sabbath school classes that I've been teaching, and uh, I think maybe in my sermon last week I asked this too, how do you know 
that God loves you. You see, I think that unfortunately for so many years, we were talking about this, some of us, last night, when we were in school, and, you know, we've all done our best. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody in the church. We have done our best, and we are all believers, and we love God, but we have failed our young people. And we were failed in that somehow I don't ever remember being told or shared with, except maybe here and there and and by example, how to have a relationship with Jesus. How do I do that? What do I, what, what, what's, how do that, that, you know? But today I even have a different question that's maybe a little more important. Not how do you know God loves you? Do you know God loves you? That's my question today. Do you know that God loves you? Mr. Beckowitz, I'm going to read what he had in our 1970 <laughs> honor class there. Bakravi says, this is what he wrote. A story has been written, destination nowhere. It is the story of a man deciding to travel abroad without a destination in mind. He was headed for nowhere. Where are you going, student of Battle Creek Academy? What do you plan to do along the way? Time will tell. But a goal will aid in your arriving at destination somewhere. So, where have you come from? And where are you going? How do you know God loves you? And do you know God loves you? Um, our son, show you a little thing here before we get to our scripture this morning. Uh, I, I, we're thinking he must have been about seven years old, and you're not going to be able to see this real well, but I will share with you. It's a little note, it's getting a little raggedy. I keep it in my Bible as a reminder. And on the front is a heart, and it says, To mom and dad from DJ. We were living in Berrien Springs at the time in Buchanan, Michigan. And you open it up and he says, dear mom and dad, I love underlined and exclamation points in different colors. He forgot the you. (laughs) I love. And then he at the bottom says, do you love me? Choose one, no or yes. He'd gotten into trouble. (laughs) He was in just a little bit of trouble, and he was in his room. And all of a sudden, I guess we'd already gone to bed or something, but he slipped this under the door that night since he was stuck in his room. And then he says, return to DJ McKenzie, 2117 Grange Road, Buchanan, Michigan, 49107. Then he put, P.S., just slip under the door. (laughs) Uh, But that question... Do you love me? There is not a soul on earth now or ever has been that does not want to be loved. And I'm here to tell you today about a God who loves you more than you can ever imagine or think. He is my best friend. And that's who I want to share with you today. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 16. I don't know how much time I've got, but we're going to see if we can get through this. My husband says sometimes I am like a 
fire hose, and so today I'm going to be one. So just get ready, okay? So we are going to do one of my favorite stories. I actually did a sermon not too long ago. Three women, uh, how did I say that? Oh, I don't even remember. It was three women something, and, but, this, but one God. And uh, this was one of the women, Hagar. Uh, very, very fascinating story, but it is so rich. I actually spent a lot of COVID time um, in the book of Genesis looking at Abraham and going through, oh my word, if I could have, I would have preached about Abraham, but I really uh, was drawn to Hagar. So this morning we're going to start there with her. And you remember, of course, that Abraham, Abram actually at this point, has been given a promise He's been given a promise that he is going to get two things. He's going to get land, and he's going to get descendants. And then he's also given it a second time after he leaves the uh, Ur of the Chaldees, and he comes to where God wants him to be. And when he gets there, he has a vision, and it's where the animals are cut in half, and they're laid out, and that is a sign of a covenant. When somebody walks through that, and they get to the end, they say, if I don't keep this covenant, you can do that to me. Whoa, it would kind of make you think twice about not going through with something you promised, right? But this covenant was different with Abram. Because Abram didn't go through it. And you have to remember that. One of the things that I think we get confused on is that we think that God wants us to be faithful. Does he want us to be faithful? It's, it's kind of a trick question. Okay, maybe I'll do it this way. Are we faithful all the time? No, okay, that's what I was looking for. No, we try to be faithful. We do our best to be faithful. But... You know, can I say doggone it in here? Anyways, <laughs> doggone it. You know, you're just, you're trying so hard not to get upset. My husband knows this. I am a very impatient driver. And it's just like, what is wrong with that person? Why won't they get going? I got to get where I'm, I, you know, I'm on my way. I'm always in a hurry. What is wrong with them? And then I'll go, okay, Gail, just take a deep breath. It's okay. And just, you know, go with the flow. Uh, I need to be more like a phlegmatic, like my husband. They say opposites marry, and we did. So he's got so much patience, and I don't. And so anyways, but you know, you have those moments, and you're like, and then you hear your child in the back going, that idiot driver. You're like, no, 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 I never said that, did I? I did not say that. No, don't ever say that again. Don't say that. That's not nice. You know, you've never been there, but I have. I will admit it. I'm just going to tell you, I have used that word not recently. I'm doing better. Um, but, you know, faithful, faithful. But guess who's not faithful? We aren't. But guess who is? God is. He walks through those dead animals that blood has been shed. Three times blood is shed with Abraham. And then Abraham. Here, circumcision, and when he takes Isaac up the moment, up the mountain, blood is shed. Every time the covenant is given to Abram and Abraham, blood is shed. And so that's the setting of this story. He's just been through this vision, Abram has. And it starts in verse 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now right off the bat, that tells us that... Uh, Something is amiss. This story is not like they thought it was going to be. 
those of us that have lived a longer time now look back and when we walked across the threshold of Battle Creek Academy and threw our cap and gown back, got our diploma from Mr. Beckowitz, and we walked out going, oh, this is what my life is going to be like. But then there's some detours, aren't there? There might be some losses along the way. There may be some mistakes made. There may be some going off road and it didn't go quite the way that you thought it did. And this is what's happening here. Abram and Sarai have waited 10 long years for the promised son. And guess how old Abram is? He's 85 years old. Sarah is 75 years old, way past the age of talking about a baby, let alone having one. And she was way past the hot flashes stage. I mean, that was far behind her. And by the way, he was way past caring. So there you go. What a pair. Sarai is barren. It's a curse and a humiliation. She is not a mother. And for her, all prospects of being one is impossible. She is desperate to have a child, not just for the sake of being a mother, but to fulfill the promise. God said. He said. He, he did it in vision. He talked to Abram. He said it. Where is God? God obviously had messed up. He'd forgotten them or he didn't know how old they were. Since a thousand, what is it? <laughs> a thousand years is one day to him. There we go. Since he's eternity past and eternity future and he forgot. He forgot time's been going for us, 85 and 75. Was he sleeping like Elijah later accuses the God of the priests of Baal? Or when Jesus slept in the back of the boat in the midst of the terrible storm? Where was God? In fact, we read here that Sarai blames God. In verse 2, so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children from building a family that, by the way, was supposed to be a pretty large one. And if you don't get started when you're going to have as many kids as stars in the sky, uh, you, it, that looks pretty impossible, doesn't it, Denise? Yeah. I mean, again, <laughs> like, no, 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 I can't. That does not make sense. So Sarah uses decides to use a common cultural acceptable way to get a baby in the family she is going to use a surrogate mother she tells abram i love how this is she says uh so she said to abram the lord has kept me from having children go sleep with my maidservant perhaps i can build a family through her the interesting thing is when <laughs> when she says go into hagar do you remember Miss Grubbs teaching us English? Do you remember what an imperative is? Go. Or you're not getting any food tonight. I mean, it's an imperative. And Abram, it reminds me so much of Adam. We don't have any voice of Adam when Eve says, take the fruit, you know? And, and here Abram says, okay, I'll go. And he goes. Mistake number one, number two or three down the road. 
and, ah, and then he goes to the tent of Hagar. Now, Hagar, we have to examine her just a little bit. Hagar, some believe that she may have been a princess, a daughter of Pharaoh from Egypt, where you remember Abram deceived him into thinking Sarai was his sister and not his wife. And Pharaoh was like, hmm, I'm thinking I'm going to give him one of my daughters and I'm going to give him a note that says, have a nice life, Abram. So sorry you have to leave so soon, but get out of Egypt. But there was one problem with Hagar if she was a princess. Sarai's name, do you know what it means? Princess. So guess what? Now there are two princesses in the tent of Abram. Not good. Never good to have two princesses side by side in one tent. One princess is bad enough. Genesis 16.3 says that, uh, you know, Abram had been living in um, Canaan 10 years. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Now, in some versions, you'll have into his into his arms she was given it is a very very intimate word that's used there and in Sarai's vision she sees a real intimate thing happening here between Hagar and her husband now I want you to see something that happened there because first Hagar is an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. And then she says, um, she gave him, her, gave, excuse me, gave her to her husband to be his wife. What did she just elevate her to? Another wife. So now we not only have two princesses, we have two wives. It's just getting worse and worse. And so we go on. He, meaning Abram, slept with Hagar and she conceived. Woohoo! You'd think Sarah would be going, Oh, I'm going to get my baby. Not so much. David Ashrick says, We are always trying to do for God what he said he would do for us. When we attempt to help God with what he has said, he will do it usually, he has said he will do. It is usually a decision based on misinformation. We don't believe God is going to do it. Isn't that right? We're afraid he's not going to come through. What can we do to help him? I'm just going to give you a word of warning. If the thought crosses your mind that you want to help God with what he said he's going to do for you, go take a nap, run a mile, or bake something. Because all you're going to produce is an Ishmael, and that ain't good. We know later in history. So Hagar is first a princess, then a servant, and now a wife. And as if on cue, we know what's going to happen. It's human nature. We can't help it. Hagar begins to mock and despise Sarai. She despises Sarai because she is carrying the promised one. She thinks, well, they all thought. And Sarai can't take it. Verse 5, she complains and she says, you did this, Abram. I'm like, What? I mean, read it. It's right there. I mean, this is like a soap opera. Sarai calls on God and says, well, you're going to have to judge between which of us is worst in this mess. And basically, they're both the same. 
both complicit. And Abram throws up his hands and he says, do whatever you need to do with your servant. Oh no. Now Hagar, the one-time princess, then a servant, then a wife, now becomes a servant again. I have a little upside down smile, smiley face on my paper right here. And the tables are turned. Sarai despises Hagar. Princess Sarai runs Princess Hagar wife to wife out of town. And we find Hagar with a barren soul fleeing to the desert to escape Sarai in the scorn that she has suffered. Hagar with a barren soul flees to the desert to escape Sarai, excuse me, and she ends up by a well. Women are by a well a lot in the Bible. She's crying in the desert. And verse 7 is one of the most powerful verses in this whole chapter. The angel of the Lord found her near a well. Do you know who the angel of the Lord is? Anybody know? Capital A, angel of the Lord. I'm going to tell you, if you see a capital A in your version, and it says angel of the Lord, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's pre-incarnate Jesus. He has come down. And what I believe is that Jesus was watching what was happening. And he saw this young woman, who I'm going to call one of God's uns. That's what I say, you know, that God loves the uns, the undeserved, the unknown, the untouchables, the unclean, the unjust. God loves the uns, and he comes down to this. Jesus says, I can't stand it. I've got to come down, and he asks her one question, which he says, where did you come from? Where are you going? Does he need to know that? Does God need to know where we came from, where we're going? No, he knows everything. But he asks her that question. In John 8, 14, Jesus was accused that he didn't have enough testimonies about who he was. Take this scripture because it's a very important one if you are struggling of where you are and where you're going. Because Jesus looked at those Pharisees and said, I don't need anybody to testify for me. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. So we know here where she came from were the tents of Abram, where she was going. It says by the, by the road to Shur, desert of Shur. She was on her way back to Egypt. So there's so many messages here. Our time is kind of just wisping away from us here. Um, so I want to just kind of get to the point of this story that I see. I think that Jesus was saying to Hagar, don't go back to Egypt because I'm not there. You're not going to find Jesus or his love through your work, through your family, through your friends, through your... You're not going to find peace there. You have to do what Pavel Goya says. Pavel Goya said, don't only sing the song, do the song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's where we look. We look at the cross. Don't go back to Egypt because do you know in the Bible... When, metaphorically speaking, Egypt 
are people who do not believe in God. God was not in Egypt. Hagar would not find God there. The promise was not there. The promise was in the tent of Abram and Sarai. And we hear now one of the most amazing exchanges with Hagar and Jesus because she names God. She names God. She is the only woman to do that. I think maybe the only person to give him a special name. And it's the only place it appears in the scriptures. El Roy. It means the God who sees me. Our grandson, if you ask him what his name is, he's David. You'll say, David, he's two-year-old. David, what's your name? We do Zoom with him you know, all the time, FaceTime. David, what's your name? Tell us what your name is. He'll go, me. No, your name's not me. You know, we don't even know how he came up with it. David, what's your name? Hagar says, you are the God who sees me. And it gets even better because God names her son. It's the first time that before a child is born, it's given a name and it's Ishmael and it means God hears. Guess what? Guess what he told Hagar? God sees her and he hears her affliction. She had a broken heart and he found her. Do you know what that word means in Hebrew? It means he, he took a hold of her. And it also means that somebody, something is found that has been searched for. What does Jesus do in Luke 15? Searches as a shepherd for the lost sheep, for the lost coin, and then waits for the lost son. A love like this is only found in Jesus. I call it the upside-down kingdom. Do you want joy? He's the only one that can give it. Do you want peace? He's the one that stands up in the middle of the boat, in the middle of the storm, and cries out, Peace, be still to the wind and the waves. Do you want riches? Guess what? He's got streets of gold. And he's got pearls. <laughs> we talked about pearls today, didn't we, Marty? <laughs> pearls he's got gates one big pearl you don't need riches do you want a husband he says i'll be your husband i'll take care of you i will love you with an everlasting love it won't spoil or fade it will never stop it's like a fountain gushing up old faithful forever do you want a family he says the barren woman has more children than the mother of many first john 3 1 says behold what manner of love the father has given like this I will tell you that I've seen God. I've seen God in my marriage. I wish I could tell you some stories there. Well, God has just been so faithful to us. Mike's been in a plane crash, just was in a little accident last fall. Well, it was a big accident, but he's here with me today. God has been faithful to us in our marriage, in my cancer journey when I sat in that chemo chair not knowing what my future, where I was going. And I knew that God was with me. In my friends, in the retreats I've had the privilege of, wish I could share a bunch of stories about that, in answers to prayer, in my children, in the sunrises when I walk in the morning, in the love of my parents, the songs that I sing, and the word that I read and believe. I'm going to finish with just a couple more stories if you'll hang on with me in at Andrews my freshman year I got a job in audiovisual 
And that job was to take projectors around. Now, we don't have those things anymore. But years ago, remember, another thing that's gone, you had a reel here, and you had a reel here. And when you showed a film, you had to take the film from the front, and you put it on the reel on the back so it would catch up. It's the take-up reel, right? So one of my first times that I had to do this was to go to the seminary. I was a freshman girl, and they had said, watch out for seminary guys. They carry briefcases, and they're in a suit. And if you don't want to be a pastor's wife, don't get near them. And so I'm going into a classroom full of all these males. There weren't any females in there at the time, and, uh, which probably wouldn't have helped anyways. I was so intimidated. So I got that movie going, and I was sitting there watching the movie. And about halfway through, I get a tap on my shoulder, and, and he points down on the floor. And I look on the floor, and I'm like, oh, my word. <laughs> I didn't catch it good enough. <laughs> Guess where the film was? On the floor. I want you to know that if your life has been lived on the floor, God is fighting for you in this war. And he is waiting. There's a song, Love Like This. When I am a wasteland, you are the water. When I am the winter, you are the fire that burns. When I am a long night, you are the sunrise. When I am a desert, you are the river that turns to find me. What have I done to deserve a love like this? What have I done I cannot earn what you so freely give. What have I done to deserve a love like this? I'm going to show you a picture of another un. This is a picture of my daughter-in-law's brother who died November 20, 2019. He was a drug addict, long time, from the age of, I don't know, a young teen. She and her brother were adopted. It was a very terrible... <laughs> Anyways, it, their life was not good. Let's just put it that way. And Dustin was her younger brother. Wendy had some journeys herself, but she found Jesus, and Dustin did not find Jesus. He couldn't believe that somebody could love him. And he died alone in a house of some friend that would feel sorry for him and let him stay there on occasion in a pool of blood having overdosed and whatever else. The saddest thing is that tattooed across his back was the word unforgiven. And I'm here to tell you today that nobody has to be tattooed with unforgiven on their back. Because Jesus is looking for the brokenhearted and he's looking for you and for me. I'm going to ask you to stand with me now, please, if you would. I am going to make a call. And I will tell you, I don't like to make calls, so you know that this is a God thing because I felt in my heart from when I began my journey in this sermon that I should make a call. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not going to call you to come down front. This is a call that I want you to spend a few, just a few quiet moments between you and Jesus. 
And I want you to think about his faithfulness and his great love for you. If he could come to a servant, well, a princess, a servant, a wife, then back to a servant again, and then a fleeing servant, if he could do that and she could see God, later she says, I have seen God. I've seen his face. That's Jesus. And he wants to do the same thing for you and I. But he says, don't go back to Egypt because there's nothing there for you. You will not find what you're looking for. So I am going to ask you to stretch out your hands in front of you, please. And I want you to clasp your fists, make a fist. And I'm going to give you a moment of silence for you to talk to Jesus. And when you finish, when we finish uh, with that moment of silence, I will pray. Bow your heads with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are all Hagar today, women and men of the flesh. We deal continually with our human nature and we mess up. And then we flee to the desert, Lord. And sometimes we even want to go back to Egypt. And Lord, we're all Sarai's too. We try to fix things when we grow impatient. We think we can help you with your promises. How crazy is that? That the God of the universe needs our help and And Lord, we're all Abram. We're holding a promise. We cannot see how it can be fulfilled for us. We can't imagine how you will make good on saving us. And we listen to the voices in our heads and around us that say it's not possible. So we relent. Yet, Lord, you have chosen us, called us to be where you are, to go back to the tents of Abram and Sarai, two people that you did not give up on. Lord, today I'm calling on you to step into our lives Step into our lives and find us in the desert. Come as a lightning bolt to those on the road to Damascus. Fill our boat with fish and be glorified as we leave our nets and follow you. For Please step in for those who are waiting to hear the words, I love you. Speak to them in a gentle whisper. Help us today to delight in you and all that you have done to redeem us. Paul says, you, you, you have love that you want to lavish on us. Lord, we mess up, but this morning, we are so grateful that you are the God who sees and hears. And we ask you to take our barren souls, fill them to overflowing with your love and spirit. And this morning, we open our hands now, Lord, and we let Egypt go. We want to go where the promised one is. And we raise our hands above our heads in celebration and praise to show you, just like David said, raising the hands to praise who you are. We have nothing to cling to any longer. There is nothing to keep you from us or us from you. I want to thank you, Jesus, my best friend, my Savior, my shepherd. And in the last words of Mother Teresa, Jesus, I love you. I love you. 
in the name of the one who is our counselor, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, and is precious to us, Jesus. Amen and amen. I want to read one last thing to you because it is my, I guess it's my message to you today. This is my granddaughter when she was in third grade. She had to fill this out, this paper. I like and I like, but the most important thing I want you to know about me. She said, I like when it's raining because when it's done, I like to look for turtles. And I like to make tents in my room, and when I'm done, I play in them. But the most important thing I want you to know about me is that I want to follow Jesus, and I want to go to heaven, and I want to see you there, every class member, every member, everyone who's willing to say yes to Jesus, to the God who sees and hears, and you will know where you're going then. Thank you.